part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Look at verses uh, in that uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 this morning. We'll begin to, to look at some of the, the words of Peter in the area of hope. Hope is this uh, an amazing thing that we cannot live without. Every one of us need hope. Sometimes it's in trivial things. Uh, for example, after a, a really rough season uh, last year in the Braves, you were thinking that maybe if they'd made certain trades, if uh, some players that were injured came back strong, that they'd have a, a wonderful year. And so you put your hope that, hey, this is going to be a great baseball season. And then they begin the schedule, and you find out, well, maybe next year. And you start to feel like Cub fans. Uh, you know, that it's just going to be a long time <laughs> before that comes about. So some hope that we have is sometimes in trivial things. But other times, Father, uh, folks, it, it is the very foundation of our very souls. And uh, when we open up God's Word, we see that the Bible speaks much of hope. In the Old Testament, we see this hope directed forward. Because after the fall of man, after sin comes into our lives, we see that we needed a hope for that sin, for forgiveness, and, and for the fullness of life. And so everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to God's answer, and that answer was Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, we see the fulfillment of this hope, this answer that God has in the, the, the person of Christ, that he clothes himself in flesh and he comes and he dwells among, among us, fully man and yet full deity. Then after that, we begin to see the apostles and their letters and we see these letters that are circulated in the early church and they speak of hope too and they look back to what Christ accomplished in his death, burial and resurrection. And so through all this, we see this consistent theme of hope, but it always is pointing in the same direction in what Christ would accomplish. Well, today as we open up to this letter from uh, Peter, uh, let me tell you that he was writing to different churches in Asia Minor. It wasn't so much one church or one particular people, but to, to uh, believers. And he was writing to them in a time when they were feeling kind of the friction of the stand of their lives. Uh, some were being persecuted, some were, their lives were even being taken. And, and so it wasn't just an easy time to be a Christian. It wasn't easy believerism to where you just kind of you know, say, okay, I'm a Christian and everything is just going to be fine in my life. To stand for Christ in that day cost them something, sometimes their very life. And so Peter's addressing that as the same way that Paul did, and he wanted to be a word of encouragement. And so he begins to write on this subject of hope. Now, if you've been with us the last three or four weeks, following Easter, we said, you know, we don't want to take Easter and just kind of let it lie there, this resurrection, this victorious day. We want to take that and say, okay, because of the resurrection, now what does that bring into our lives? What is the resulting practical kind of thing that comes out of this great theological truth? And so a couple of weeks ago we looked at how uh, the Bible says that because of what Christ has done, Paul said, I've learned to be content in all situations. And he wasn't just talking about physical situations, but he was even talking about emotional and spiritual uh, situations that he found himself in. In other words, he took this, the theology of the truth of the resurrection. And he said, here's the practical part that it begins to, to make a difference in my life. That because he lives, now I live this way. 
See, it's one thing to celebrate Easter, guys. It's one thing to acknowledge in a uh, technical fact and even in a theological fact of the resurrection of Christ. But every intention was that we would be living out the result of that resurrection for everybody who has put their faith and trust in that. And so a couple of weeks ago, we see Paul saying, I've learned to be content. He didn't say, I was content. He says, I've, I've learned to be content. Why? And it wasn't because he had enough food or that, you know, he had clothing. This He said, I've learned to be content because I now can trust, no matter what the situation in my life, I can trust God's providence and his provision. Remember we said that that was put to the ultimate test in the death and burial of Jesus Christ. The ultimate test of God's providence, of his, is he truly sovereign? Is he truly purposeful? Is he truly providential? And all that he does was put to the ultimate test when Christ was laid in the grave. And then in that victorious day, then he rose again. We see that God does have power over everything. Sin, death, and the grave. And we can keep that as theology, guys, and it is the sure truth of the theology. But the New Testament in Christ wanted to make sure that we took that theology and that it began to change the way that we talk, the way that we think, the way that we act. The New Testament post-resurrection points us to this transforming power of Christ in our everyday life. It's not Sunday attendance to church. It's not trying to, okay, I'm going to be a little bit more moral. I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to start doing that. All those things hopefully will happen. We want to be a part of a community of believers. We want to see changes in our life. When God says, don't do this or do this, we want that. But that's not the test. It's not really the whole point of Christianity. To see if we can gather on a Sunday at 11 o'clock. The whole point of Christianity is to save us. And to see the transformed way that we begin to live our lives through the power of this resurrection. So last week we looked at a very, uh, one of those, uh, I, I called it under the couch sins of Christians, worry. You know, we can point out a whole bunch of other sins in the world, but when it comes to worry, because it affects so many of us, it's one of those things that can grab anybody's heart and mind. It's one of those that we really don't always see that as a sin as much as we see it as a shortcoming. Isn't it funny how we get cute with our words when it comes to our own personal sin? Oh, that's not a sin. That's just, uh, you know, I'm just not totally developed in it. No, it's a sin. Because Jesus, remember what he said last week in the text. He said, you know, when you worry, you act in that version. In the ESV, it said the Gentiles. And he wasn't trying to make a blow against Gentiles. He was saying, you act like people that don't believe that I exist. So this transforming of the power of the resurrection, folks, it just is so that we can gather once a week or gather together and have different Bible studies to talk about these. It's to transform our minds and our hearts so that we truly more and more and more think and act and respond like Jesus. And one of those central passages and central focuses that we see is that we would do that in the area of hope. One person said that hope is the gas in the tank of every human being. You know, that without hope, we just stop. Hope sometimes is what gets you out in the morning, as, uh, out of bed in the morning. As, as bad as we yesterday was, you can say, well, uh, maybe today, I hope it's going to be better. And yet here's the thing. Is the Christian hope the same as cross your fingers, get the lucky rabbit's foot kind of hope? No. Folks, I, I tell you, I, I'm not a believer in luck. I believe in the providence and the sovereignty of God. There is no such thing as luck. So I don't need to be lucky. 
I need to be under the providence and the plan of God. And yet at the same time, when I think about that theology that is God is totally sovereign, when I look at the evil and some of the hurt of the world, I'm going, okay, God, but you allowed that to happen. You didn't cause it to happen, but you certainly did allow it. And that's when we have that friction in our Christian life of trying to understand something that the Bible has already said is that we're unable to understand. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so for us to say, okay, I just want to get up there and just kind of be able to think about this like God thinks about it. Folks, the word is already declared we can't do that. And so that's where faith and that's where hope comes in. But it's also where the scripture comes in to undergird that with good theology. So good theology is going to tell us about hope and why we can have real hope and not just cross your finger hope. Okay? This is not about cross your finger. I hope tomorrow is better than today. This is not Annie singing the sun will come out tomorrow. Okay? And I'm certainly not going to sing it. Now, this is biblical hope grounded in the truth of theological truth that makes a practical difference in our lives. First Peter chapter 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He takes the practical reality, and he will in the coming verses there, of a hope that we're to have. But he grounds it in one thing, the resurrection of Christ. He says, okay, the living hope, we have a living hope, not a cross-your-finger hope, not I hope tomorrow is going to be better than today, because today was pretty sorry. He says, you have a living hope, and we're going to explore what that means a little bit, what it means to be uh, living there. Now, if anyone was to needed a living hope, it was Peter. Wouldn't you agree? If there was somebody that said, you know, I haven't had a spectacular past. There's been times I've had great failure in my life. It was Peter. For those that may not be familiar with the whole biblical story and some of the people in the Bible, Peter was the one that Christ said, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. And remember we looked at that probably a couple months ago, and Peter was insistent, remember? He said that he really did not believe that he was even capable of denying Christ. And yet Christ confronted him and said, no, you look back in the Old Testament, this has already been prophesied. This is going to happen. Peter begins to look at the other disciples and says, well, you know, they might, but I'm not. If there was anybody that really needed to have a living hope, to have a hope that goes beyond our failures, it was Peter. When we were kids, whenever we messed up, whether it was our fault or something else, or especially if we were playing ball or something like that, we called for a do-over. Remember that? Maybe it was a car that we thought was going to come down the street and that messed up our swing or the touchdown pass or whatever it was. And so do-over. But here's the thing about the do-over. Okay, the do-over was dependent on the, upon the mercy of the other people that were playing. Because if you had somebody on the other team say, no, no, that car didn't turn down here, it didn't really affect your swing or the touchdown pass or whatever it is, we're not going to give you a do-over. So one of the faults of the do-over is that you are at the mercy of other people if you're really going to get a second chance. If there was ever a person that really needed a second chance, kind of a do-over, it was Peter. And we see that back in the Gospels that he gets this, if you want to say, in a way, a do-over through Christ. But now it's post-Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. Peter has preached. 
He's seen thousands come and trust Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I can only imagine that there was times, just like in your life and my life, that even though we've claimed victory of Christ over something, somehow that failure kind of tries to creep back in. Have you ever had that experience? (laughs) You've prayed about it. You've claimed. You've come to the the altar. You've you've done all these things. And yet, even though it was five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, that somehow Satan and his lies to you uh, begins to say, well, you know, here's who you really are. And tries to take your focus off of Christ and put it back on your own ability to walk holy before God. Well, the Bible's already settled that. None of us walk holy. The Bible makes it very clear that all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so we all have only one hope, and that was Jesus Christ. Well, that's where Peter is. I believe that he kind of, you know, even now, as he's writing this, is, is probably from time to time kind of tormented by his past failures. And so it's, there's this problem of, okay, is he going to get a do-over? But there's also one other inherent problem of a do-over. Now, think this through. Let's say that you're working with a crowd, and they decide that they're going to give you a do-over. Here's the second inherent problem of a do-over. It's still on your shoulders. Maybe you didn't get the touchdown pass. Maybe you didn't get the home run. Maybe you didn't do that. But even if you get a do-over because you say, the sun was in my eyes. We felt the car was coming down the street. No matter what it is, even when you get a do-over in life, guys, it's still on your shoulders. You either pony up or you don't. This is not biblical truth. That I'm going to give you a second chance, Jeff. Man, Radley, you know, there's some years in there that, hmm, I don't know, but we're going to give you a second chance. But it's still all on your shoulders. That's not what the Bible says. What Peter's making proclamation of, and what we need in our hearts and our lives goes, is it's not a do-over American style. We need to know that Christ has finished that work. And now we hide in Him. Now we rest in Him. See, we like second chances. We like third chances. And we like fourth chances. But if it still comes down to your ability to achieve, then isn't the pressure still on you? And that is not the biblical record. That is not our hope that maybe the second time out or the third time out, now with a little bit of experience, I can ace this test. Guys, you put me up in front of something, and, and you know I'm convinced that when I'm 90 years old, I'm still going to struggle with sin. Have you come to that conclusion in your life? that I'm going to deal with pride, I'm going to deal with worry, I'm going to deal with a lot of those things in life that can creep into our minds. And even though God would give me do-over, 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 if it's still on my shoulders, I can fail. But if I put it on the shoulders that carried that cross that rose from the dead, it is finished and done. And when he said, it is finished, it was done. I don't need a do-over. I need and that's our hope. So don't get caught up in this kind of fictitious thing that, oh, man, if I just had one more chance. I mean, how many times have we said, man, if I could just go play that one again, if I could just go back in five years and make this other choice, but it's still on you. That's not what the Word says. Look again at this. Peter points to something that is better than a do-over. He says, according to His, that is God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This isn't just a second chance. 
that hopefully second chance, third chance, you'll get it right. This is a promise of a living hope. Let me explain. Peter shares two things about this living hope that is in the word that we want to see there. The first thing he says, that this living hope originates from God. Do you see that term, born again? Pretty loaded term in in our American life, especially back in the 70s and 80s. That was kind of the, the phrase that a lot of people used. Jimmy Carter, when he was president, kind of made it kind of famous. People said, boy, he's a born-again president. They were kind of describing that he was a Christian. He put his faith and trust in Christ. And that word born-again was kind of used because we see it even scripturally. You see, Nicodemus. Hey, you can't be saved unless you're born again, the second birth. So it's not that it doesn't have some biblical kind of presence there, but this isn't just a description that somehow this is another name for Christianity. What we see here is that this born again, as he uses here, comes from the same word that is oftentimes interpreted from the Greek, begotten. John 3.16. Anybody just want to yell that out? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you learned it that way. His only, that word begotten, it's the same word that he uses here when he's beginning to talk about born again. The word begotten there gives this inference and this understanding that this is from God. The, the Greek word says the Father's seed. Not to get too technical or too graphic, but that's what he's coming from. This is not a hope that somehow you go up on a mountain and you try to kind of build up this hope in yourself. One thing that Peter's trying to say by this born again, this hope that is born again, begotten from the Father, is that it comes from the Father. If you're trying to muster up hope on your own ability, on your own strength, on your own power of persuasion to your own mind, you're looking in the wrong place. So he settles from the very beginning. Okay, where do we get this living hope? It's from the Father. It comes from this new relationship that we have for Christ. How many of you can take credit for being born? I mean, have you ever thought, I mean, kind of ridiculous. I'm not trying to be silly or funny. But can any of us take credit for being born? No. But we were all begotten. Somebody begot us. And Peter wants us to know right here that if you're going to have a living hope, it's not something that you generated in your own life. It's not you with the power of persuasion. It's not because you opened up Dale Carnegie or some other Tony Robbins or anybody else or anybody else that's the power of positive thinking. No, that this kind of living hope comes from God himself. And it's based on the truth of what his son accomplished. So that's the first thing that he wants us to know about this living hope is that it originates from God. The second thing that we see there is that this living hope rests in the resurrection, not in your ability to get it right the second time. Now, I realize I've already said that a couple of times. You might say, Bobby, you're starting to repeat yourself. It is worth repeating. Because one of the greatest temptations that I think that we have, even as Christians that somehow that this new life just means we get another chance. And that maybe now with the new improved model of Bobby that we're going to get it right the second time. Guys, new life, not new and improved. You died to self. You're alive in Christ. That's Christianity. 
it is not this moral alignment of your life with a bunch of commandments. I realize, I do realize that so, what, you don't think we should obey the commands? I do think that we should obey the commands. But it's after the transforming of my mind and my heart that I start to love the commandments of God. Not that I live in fear of the commandments of God, but I love that because it's His law and it's His word. And I start to want that in my life. It's not one of those things, well, you know, I'm just afraid that if I step out of line, you know, that commandment number three, He's going to smack Folks, that, that's unchristian, or it's at most really kind of immature Christianity. I'm not trying to be, you know, caustic to anybody. That's not what God has called us to. That somehow at the finish of our life, okay, you know, you used to make, like mess up 20 times a day. And by the end of your life, you were like only messing up like three times a day. Good job. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, man, I needed to die. And I needed to find my life in the hope of Christ in his resurrection. And so that's where he places all of this living hope. It's not our ability to get it right the second, third, fourth time. But that we have this living hope based on one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not even just the teaching of Jesus Christ. Not just the, hey, Jesus was a really good guy and he had some really good sermons. Had Jesus still spoken what we studied last week, Sermon on the Mount, had he still taught us all the other things, had he still done the miracles, and had he done everything, had he still went to a cross and died and was buried but never rose again, Paul says you have nothing to teach. You have no hope. Everything, everything that we are and that we have hope for in this living hope is based on this reality. But here's the thing, guys. This is not cross your finger hope. This is the reality that this really did happen. And so he takes this rock-solid truth, and he says, now you can have a hope. Let me put it this way. What if they wrote a book about your life and broke it down to chapters? Would there ever have been a time in your life, if you go back and that on that current chapter, Most people that would be reading that book about your life when they read that chapter and said, there's no hope. I mean, does anybody have that kind of a story? Not that you have to share it this morning. When reality, I mean, I guarantee you, you could tell us that story and we would agree, man, wow. But you know, that is every person's story. Here's the great thing about the gospel. Here's the beauty of the gospel, guys. Here's the treasure of Christ and the hope that we have, this living hope. That just because chapter 5 says this, or chapter 7 says this, that's not the end of the story. Aren't you, aren't you just, doesn't that make you want to celebrate today? That God didn't close the book and write the end after chapter 7. Because I don't know where you were at chapter 7, but I was in a pretty picture at chapter 7. And some of you might hear say, well, you know, I only have one chapter. Out of my 30 chapters of life, I only have one chapter that I went kind of astray. And, and praise God for that, that he surrounded you with encouragement and maybe godly parents and that. But many of us, many of us can say that's not our story. Out of the 30 chapters, there's about 28 in there that are graphically dark and graphically bad. But there is a chapter when I turned my trust and my faith 
to my living God, and he gave me a living hope, and he changed my life forever because of his resurrection in the power. That's what Peter's talking about. Peter's not saying, hey, give me a do-over. Send those three people back, and this time I'm not going to deny. He says, I have a living hope. And it's not that I get a second chance to do it right. I have a living hope of somebody who's finished it and wrote the last chapter of my life, and it looks like this. Isn't that amazing? That's the amazing thing about Christianity, guys. That I would say a lot, if not even maybe the majority of the hope and the truth that we have that, that brings us to this hope on an everyday basis is yet to be realized. And so a lot of this is going to happen in heaven. But right now we actually get the hope to know, and that's where the faith comes in, this hope that one day there is going to be a place of no tears and no pain and this and no sin. But folks, that is not the attraction of heaven. It's not the, oh, this land of no and no more of this and no more of that. The attraction of heaven, I pray as we would grow in our walk with Christ, is not that we have no more of this, but that we get God, the treasure of our affection. And that's the hope that Peter, I believe, began to realize more and more and more. Not his ability to get it right, but that he could place his hope in the finished work of Christ. There's an old hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You see, Peter was addressing Christians in Asia Minor. They were going through persecution. They, They had a tough life. To stand for Christ often meant much more than it does for, for us in this day and age. And so the, he knew as he wrote this letter that they were suffering from physical, tormenting persecution, mental persecution, alienation from family members because of their stand for Christ. So he knew that they were going through the ringer because of, of Christ. And so he said, look, I want you to have a living hope for today, but I also want you to know that this living hope will be made full in eternity. Look down at verse 6 or 7. 6 and 7. One of the great fallacies or lies of Satan is that if we come to Christ, all of a sudden, everything in our life is going to get great. Look what Peter says. In this you rejoice. If you, if you, it's all right to write in your Bible. Circle that word rejoice. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found and result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in there is the promise, hey, you come to Christ, you start living for Christ, and the sun comes out every single day. And it's a nice temperate 71, 72 degrees. And flowers never die. And tummies are never hungry. It's not the promise of Christ. This is not the gospel. 
This is not the gospel. The gospel is in the midst of the raging sea. There is an anchor that holds. And in the midst of all the trials, there is an anchor that does not let us drift. And his name is Christ. It's not your performance, not your ability to get it right the second or third time. It's the finished work of what he has accomplished. And can you imagine how powerful that was to Peter? We were talking in life group today. Isn't it amazing the things that Satan tries to tell you at 2 o'clock in the morning that he doesn't tell you at 2 uh, p.m.? That somehow when your senses are kind of all in tune in the darkness of night, that's when his whisper seems like a loud roar. Peter says, I imagine he had those nights. I imagine when he was preaching the gospel during the day, when he's surrounded by, by Christians and fellowship, they said, Peter, you know, you know that's forgiven. Those denials, that's, that's behind you. It has been paid for and full. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, I can imagine there was every once in a while that the evil one came and tried to tempt Peter and say, yeah, you talk a big game now. But it wasn't that long ago that you couldn't even stand up once, twice, or three times without denying the very one you, you say you serve. And when that whisper comes at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's a shout. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, guys, either have a hope and an anchor or you don't. And you're either going to look back, yeah, but this week I did this, 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 and this. I served at the food bank. I did this. You know, that coat, I gave, they looked cold. I gave it to them. We're either going to look to ourselves that somehow this compensates and offsets this denial over here or we're going to go, look, I just point to the cross. I just point to the finished work of Christ. There's my hope. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the test that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we point to Christ, when we know that his sufficiency, he says one day, all glory, all glory and all focus will be on the treasured one and what he has accomplished. So the Christian life is not escapism. The answer is not, can I hide from the difficulties and the friction of life? The, the secret isn't, hey, I'm going to set sail and hope that there's never storms. The answer, guys, is in the midst of the storm, in the middle of the ocean, that you have an anchor that holds. That, that old hymn, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Peter has a lasting, living hope that will endure to the end. Your life, my life, hot and cold. Have you ever played that kid, that game of kids? Something is hidden. Warmer, warmer. Oh, really hot? 
burning hot, burning hot, colder, colder, freezing cold. It sounds like my walk with Christ sometimes. Does it sound like yours? Burning hot, on fire, cold, colder, freezing cold. on your shoulders. It's not the second chance. It's not the third chance. It's not the tenth chance. It's not the hundredth chance. It is done. And it is finished in Christ Jesus. And it will stay until look at what it says in verse 7. It will endure to what time may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The anchor it holds for today, for tomorrow, till Christ comes in that great revelation. Perhaps that's why that songwriter ended that song with this last stanza. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, pressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the rock, solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground, guys. Second chances, tenth chances, a hundred chances, sinking ground. Christ the solid rock. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, we, we want to end this morning, Father, just with a, a word that reflects, Father, the truth that we have read, that you've written to give us a living hope. And Father, we thank you for great hymn writers. We realize that hymns are not uh, your truth. Uh, or you know, Father, it's not uh, your holy word. But Father, it reflects the truth that we find in your word. And so, Father, we sing this song because it just kind of summarizes some of the truth that we've looked at today. Father, I believe if, if Peter was here today that he'd be singing the loudest that he would know that his hope rests solely in you. Father, I pray today for those that are really struggling, for those that are beset by this constant temptation. That Father, whether it's addiction, whether it's something that's just a tormenting sin in their life, and they pray every day, and maybe they look for a do-over every day so that maybe they can do better tomorrow. Father, will you get their eyes off of their ability. And will you give them rest and security in the anchor of Jesus Christ this day? Father, for those that uh, their lives are filled with worry and fear, the unknown future, Father, of maybe their children and the unknown future of their finances or the unknown future of, of anything, and it just, Father, at 2 o'clock in the night, Father, it just kind of screams out at them. Father, will you give them rest that you're a God who's sovereign over all. And Father, we can trust your plans. We may not understand them. We may not agree with them, but we can trust them because, Father, you will work for your glory and for our good. You have said that. And so, Peter, Father, I I love how he says it. Maybe today there's still going to be storms, but in the midst of this storm, I have an anchor and that anchor holds and will continue to hold until the last day. So Father, we lift our voices, we lift our our very lives now before you as we sing this prayer 
of reflection and commitment as we go today, Father. We love you and we thank you as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.